0: Good evening. You may remember a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning we talked about turning the world upside down for Jesus. This morning, of course, we talked about being an Acts chapter 29 church. Tonight, with our His Word study, we're moving away from Acts and into Romans, and I thought by talking about Romans 1, 16 and 17, we could really tie up a lot of this and kind of complete the series, so to speak, you know, the story is told of a young Christian man who enlisted in the army, and his father was hesitant about his son joining the army because being in the army himself many years ago, his father knew about the ridicule and the mocking that would come from being a Christian and being in the army around otherworldly individuals. And so the father warned his son and told him, you know, these things are probably going to happen, be ready the son joined the army, and after basic training, he called his dad on the phone. His dad said, son, how are you doing? Is everything okay? And his son said, yes, dad, fortunately for me, no one has found out yet that I'm a Christian. And I think sometimes it's easier to hide our Christianity. It's easier to hide our faith than subject ourselves to ridicule or mocking. And Paul says, you can't do that. Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Think about that statement in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, Paul says, I am proud of the gospel. Don't you find that interesting? Considering all that Paul endured for the sake of the gospel, don't you find it interesting that he would make a statement such as that? If anyone had a reason to turn their back on the faith, to turn their back on the gospel because of all the mocking and ridicule and pain that it caused them, it would be Paul, but he would have none of that, right? Paul had been imprisoned in Philippi, he had been chased out of Thessalonica, he had been smuggled out of Berea, he would laughed at in Athens. In Corinth, his message was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block among the Jews. Of course, you can turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and you can see that Paul was beaten more times than he could count. He was often in danger of death. Five times he received the 30, uh, 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned once, lived to tell about it. Three times he was shipwrecked, and his life was in danger virtually at every turn. Yet Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am proud of the gospel, and it makes one wonder, why? I mean, may I ask why, Paul? Why would you be so proud of the gospel when it puts you in so much danger? Well, for Paul, that's an easy answer. I think we really deal with two extremes here. I think sometimes as Christians we we can sit back in our comfortable pew in an air-conditioned or heated building and we can say, well, of course Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because as a Christian that's what you do. And we get rather cavalier about it. You know, we kind of put ourselves in the same position as Paul and say, yeah, I would have done that. You know, it's kind of like when you're sitting at home playing armchair quarterback. You watch your favorite team, and the kicker misses a 50-yard field goal wide right with 11 humongous guys rushing at him. And you say to yourself, well, anybody could have made that kick. You know, we look at Paul, and we say, yeah, I mean, sure he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he be? I would not be ashamed of the gospel. I mean, if I was in his position, I would do the right thing. Would you? Or we go to the other extreme, and we assume that Paul was some super saint. And so, therefore, we'll leave this this evangelism stuff to Paul. All those super saints that God has endowed with the ability to spread the gospel, we'll let them do it. We're not equipped for that. We're not on that level, and therefore, we just bow out of service. Here's the truth in all this. Paul was an unbelievable and in many ways unmatched missionary. Paul faced things that most of us will never have to deal with. However, we are all messengers with a message. And here's something else that we cannot afford to miss. We obeyed the gospel. Most of you here have obeyed the gospel at some point in your life. How can we be ashamed of the message that has saved us? It's kind of like your parents. Your parents raised you they provided for you they protected you they sustained you all along the way they were your chauffeur your chef they clothed you they when you were small they they took care of your every need but as you got older probably didn't want them around much they weren't cool anymore you were more than willing to accept the benefits from them but otherwise you really didn't want them around I remember when I was about the fifth or sixth grade, I told my dad, can you just drop me off around the corner when he was taking me to school? Then he had like a midlife crisis and bought like a used Corvette Stingray, and I was more than happy for him to drop me off in front of the school. But don't kiss me, right? I don't want you touching me. He just let me off. Are we more than willing to be the beneficiary of, of God's great gift, yet not really willing to share it or to present it to others? Paul felt obligated to preach, if for no other reason, because of what an encounter with Jesus had done in his life. Notice 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 9, it says, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Maybe your parents were an embarrassment to you at a certain age when you were younger. Maybe, maybe they weren't cool enough for you, even though they provided for you, sustained you, protected you. But as your parents get older, what happens? The roles kind of reverse, don't they? Your parents live long enough, and you tend to have to provide for them and protect them and sustain them and you do it, you do it willingly, and you do it lovingly, because you recall what they did for you. You grew out of that too cool for school stage, and now you realize all that your parents did for you, and it's only right that you take care of them, that you return the blessing, and that's similar to how we respond to the gospel. It saved us, so why would we not share it with others in the effort to save them? we can come to fully understand what the gospel means for us when we reflect on where we were at before we became a Christian, and thus we share it with others because we want them to have that same joy, that same gift. So let's take everything that we have kind of focused on a couple of weeks ago this morning and let's tie it all together and put a nice little bow on it. This is good stuff, and I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible, mark it up, underline some things, circle some things. This is good stuff. Remember the famed psychiatrist, Carl Menninger? Remember that guy? By the way, he's not in your Bible, so you, you, we'll get there in just a second. Famed psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, asked a question that seems prophetic now. He asked the question, whatever happened to sin? Here's what he said, actually. The word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Meninger warned that if the concept of sin were eliminated from open cultural discourse, that any hope of a moral society would inevitably vanish. Whatever happened to sin? These words by Carl Menninger were written many years ago. And yet again, it seems prophetic, doesn't it? Because we live in a society which calls evil good and good evil. We live in a society which makes it very difficult to reach people because there is such a twisted sort of view of scripture. There is a thumbing of the nose at God there is this absolute uh, stubbornness and this attitude of unrepentantness that I don't want anything to do with God or His people. I don't care about His Word. I don't care what He has to say on any subject. Paul faced opposition to the message, of course. We can expect that as well, which is another reason I think many Christians need to, I guess, step up to the plate more Show that boldness and conviction because when it gets harder and harder to share the message, it's easier for us to shirk back when, now more than ever, our society needs to hear the truth. Back up in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The letter to the Romans starts out so nice. I mean, those who were receiving the letter for the first time, reading it for the first time, probably thought, isn't Paul such a great guy? I mean, what a nice guy that he would say such sweet and kind things. But there's more. Verse 18 and following, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Oh, okay, we've, that escalated quickly, didn't it? because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that we are without excuse for even though they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened professing to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You've heard me say it before. We talked about it two weeks ago. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. We often hear the term good news associated with the gospel, and certainly it is, but for those who are outside of Christ and hearing it for the first time, the gospel can be bad news before it is good news. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul continues, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The gospel teaches us what reveals the wrath of God. Notice that first part that I read, for in it. What is the it here? What's the gospel, isn't it? For in it, the righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. but The wrath of God is revealed as well, isn't it? What reveals the wrath of God? Well, Paul tells us ungodliness, unrighteousness, those who suppress the truth. We always think of the gospel as the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and as I said, certainly it is. But Paul says there's another side to all this. The good news is the power of God for salvation. It's also a revelation of his wrath. And we can't deny that. We can't get around that. It's, it's scary stuff, but you can't avoid it. It's the kind of stuff that sinful people maybe don't like to hear it, it might be the kind of stuff that that we as Christians don't really like to tell, but it's all part of the story. It's all part of the plan. Now, you go over to chapter 2 of Romans, and Paul continues by speaking of those who are storing up wrath for themselves because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart. Verses 5 through 8, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath And revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Do you realize the Bible speaks more about wrath than it does about love? I don't think that's because God is more wrathful than He is loving. I don't think it's the Holy Spirit's intent to overemphasize wrath at the expense of love. But what it does show us is that you can't avoid the wrath of God. Not only is it Christians who sometimes want to avoid speaking about the wrath of God because it's not as loving and it's not as syrupy. There's even preachers who would rather avoid talking about the subject but if this shows us anything it shows us that you can't gloss over it you can't bypass this God's wrath is real and we cannot act like it's not a thing because scripture speaks boldly and plainly about a God who will punish the wicked The good news is that the sinner can be justified. The bad news is that, unfortunately, some will stubbornly refuse this gift of grace. They will store up wrath for themselves. They may not be struck dead immediately, but there will come a day, a day of wrath, when they will receive their just punishment. Justice delayed is not justice denied. God will avenge all unrighteousness. And so what we have here in Romans chapter 1 and 2 is the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's good news. The bad news, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The ugly, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But folks, please hear me on this. It's all good. Believe it or not, it's all good. It may seem rather unpleasant. It may not seem like it's all good. It may seem like the angry side of God, and we don't want to be on that side. The wrath of God may be something that we don't find all that appealing. It might even be offensive to someone when we point out that the wrath of God is directed towards those who are living in sin. A holy God must punish sin, even if it's his own son, though. Someone has to pay. Someone has to pay. Even if it's his own son, the cross demonstrates the wrath of God being satisfied. An impartial and righteous God did not even let his own son sneak in the back door. Think about that. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 3 verses 24 through 26. God is righteous And he is just. And hear me on this as well. You don't want a God who is not wrathful. You don't want a God who is not wrathful. You want a God who is just, and you say, oh no, Chris, I don't either, because I have no leg to stand on. If God is just and the justifier, if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I have no hope, right? If sin is a personal affront to a holy God, then I cannot stand against a just God. But not so fast. Proverbs 17, 15, He who justifies the wicked And he who condemns the righteous are both alike, an abomination to the Lord. How can God justify the wicked? How can he do that? How can God justify the wicked and not be an abomination to himself? You know the answer? The gospel. That's how. The gospel, that's that's the reason. That's the reason why a just God can look at a sinner like you or me and say, not guilty. I don't know about you, but that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And for some, maybe this is a challenge to follow along because this is too academic of a sermon, but this better excites you. This better be something that gets your, your juices flowing because this is great stuff. The fact that God can look at you, the just God, Can look at you, a sinner, and say, Not guilty. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You see, the gospel doesn't start in Acts. The gospel doesn't start in the New Testament. The gospel doesn't pick up in Hebrews. Do you know where the gospel starts? In the Old Testament. That's why it frustrates me to no end when I hear preachers or teachers or Christians say, the Old Testament really holds no value to us. Baloney. It means everything to us. Because all of this we learn about in the New Testament is set up in the Old Testament, right? You can go back to Leviticus and see where the gospel begins. You can go even further back than that, but look, you know, you go back sometime and read through Leviticus and see the gospel message playing out, or at least the pointers to the Messiah, to deliverance, to this theme of redemption, which is what the Bible is all about. Follow the thread of atonement and see how it's realized. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Underline that, highlight it, circle it, or do all of the above, that phrase, yet without sin, because those words make all the difference to you and me. Those words mean everything. Those words that we simply pass over when we're reading through Hebrews mean everything to us. It is what distinguishes the Levitical system from the New Testament or the New Covenant. Jesus is the perfect, holy, sinless sacrifice. He was not a copy. He was not an archetype. He was not a shadow of things to come. He was not symbolic. His death was not some ceremony or ritual. He is the unblemished lamb. He is also the perfect high priest. Unlike Aaron or any other priest that had to be cleansed continually, Jesus was without blemish. He was the lamb who was to be offered. He was the high priest who offered the lamb. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is the spiritual deliverer who brought us out of slavery and out of exile into his kingdom. He took us from exile in a land of darkness known as sin to the promised land of heaven. Got all that? That's good stuff. That's real meat there. And it's our story. And we've talked about this throughout the past year. This is our story. When you became a Christian, you got inserted into this story. As we said this morning, it's not when you obeyed the gospel. That's wrong terminology. It's not about obeying the gospel one time. Are you continually obeying the gospel? Are you living out your baptism? Because your baptism does not give you a lifetime exemption. Your baptism is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not what it is. You continue to obey the gospel for as long as you live. You continue to live out your baptism. And what is one of the primary ways that we do that? How do we obey the gospel continually? By sharing the gospel, right? That's one of the terms of obedience. When it comes to being a, a disciple, when it comes to living out our baptism, when it comes to obeying the gospel, we are God's primary method. We are who He is using. Jesus was sent. The apostles were sent. We have been sent. You see, what happens sometimes? Well, let me describe it like this. There's an illustration, true story about a gentleman named Christopher Circe who was playing basketball in the park when he was shot in the chest and the bullet perforated his aorta. His friends picked him up, and they hauled him to the hospital. They got him within 40 feet of the entrance of the hospital, and one of them ran inside and asked the staff to come out and help, but it was hospital policy that they didn't treat anyone outside the hospital grounds, on the hospital grounds. They had to be inside. And so finally, a police officer helps him put him in a wheelchair. They wheel him inside, but it was too late. He ended up passing away. Folks, there are people all around us that are dying spiritually. You open up the paper every day and you, you look at the obituaries, and how many of you think to yourself, I wonder if that person was a Christian? It was mentioned in the announcements my dad's best friend, the guy he grew up with and was in the trucking business with, passed away. Peewee. Peewee was 6'4, 300 pounds. He wasn't much of a Peewee. Driving last night in rural mountainous Arkansas and hit a deer and ran off the road and died instantly Pee Wee was not a Christian although my dad had been working with him he wasn't a Christian you think about those situations those happen every day that people go into eternity unprepared but so often we want them to come in the building before we'll treat them right I've said this before, but I, I, I heard this a lot, you know, when I first started out in ministry and I first became a Christian is, you know, just preach the truth and they will come. Folks, our world doesn't have a clue about what truth is. You turn on the news, do you get on social media, Do you see what people are calling truth. We've got to go. We can't expect people to just come to us and be laid at, a, at, a, at our front doorstep. We've got to go to them. We've got to be that movement again, that Acts 29 church. You know, every now and then I'll run into somebody. Happened just the other day. Oldham Lane, so aren't y'all that church that, and I think, oh no, what's coming next? I'm always hoping and praying that it's a good thing that they end that sentence with. But this particular person said, aren't y'all that church that helps people? And I thought, I sure hope so. Not just physically, I hope we're that church that helps people spiritually. Because if the only thing people know about your church is where it's at, or what time your services are, that's not enough. What they should know about us is that we make and grow disciples. And that is our number one mission. And that's what we're going to do until the Lord comes back or until we leave. If you have a need tonight, we can help you with, come as we stand and as we sing.